I think we're in the we're in a time between stories. We're in a time where our the dominant story of progress, of separation, of things will like the notion that things constantly can and will get better is completely breaking down. We are in as I'm a millennial and I see for Gen Zs as well, like millennials are now in the first generation who are poised to not do as well as the generation before them, right? So yeah. there's this notion that the promise of why it was worth it to even do those meaningless jobs or be part of this wheel, like all of those promises are breaking down. Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Najia Shawkat Lepsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an intersystems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time in service to the sacredness of life. My guest today is Zineb Mui. Zineb is the co-founder of two charitable organizations, Youth by Youth and The Weaving Lab. Youth by Youth is a movement to radically reimagine the future of education with the goal of accelerating the process of young people influencing, designing, and transforming their education. The Weaving Lab is a global community of practice with the mission of advancing the field of weaving, understood as the practice of interconnecting ideas, people, projects, organizations, places, and ecologies to support systems change. Zineb is also a PhD candidate in anthropology and social change, where she explores the question, how might we facilitate a planetary transition to a thriving planet? And how could education lead to a planetary transition? Zineb and I talk about why education is one of the root causes of the many interrelated global crises we're facing as it is the core of the human-making function of society. Zineb also believes that despite decades of well-intentioned adults working to reform public education, the system is still producing the same result, and it's time for a youth-led revolution in education. Her work with young people has confirmed her hunch that they need to be the ones leading the change. We also talk about the benefits and risks of artificial intelligence in education and agree that it is of the utmost importance that those in positions of educational leadership work to deepen their understanding of AI and how it is and will impact children moving forward. Quick note before we get started, if you haven't already listened to the first full episode of this podcast, called The Metacrisis Overview. I highly recommend you go back and listen to that first. It's really a foundational episode that provides a lot of the grounding that is important for all the episodes that follow. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or subscribe to the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. Hi, Zineb. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you. And just to begin, I'd love to ask you, what's your story? 
Thank you for having me, first of all. And so I guess I'll introduce myself. Um, my name is Zineb. I'm, I'm from Morocco. That's where I was born and raised. And I think my story is the typical story of a student who goes to a school and realizes that school is not meant for most people. So it was a youth education activist very early on. And initially just by being class president and wanting to advocate for my fellow students. And realizing year after year that my fellow students were just more and more demotivated, losing their sense of self, losing their sense of who they were, their own motivation, their, their view of themselves, their self-worth, I could see was dwindling year after year because of the system that is made for you to fit into it, not actually discover who you are in it. So realizing that. I realized that I wanted to work in education and development. And at the time, the main narrative that I was hearing was, oh, this is something you do outside of your career. Anything that's social is maybe what you do on your off time when you want to help people, but this is not actually a career. So I went into business initially very early on, but it was not the career for me. And so I started looking into how can I have a career in the social development sector and went into development, the international development. I initially studied like the role of education in economic and political development. And there was also, yeah, I feel like my story is also a story of unlearning. I feel like my whole twenties was uh, realizing little by little that all the things that I had learned were models and frameworks and stories that I started identifying with and seeing as, as wrong for me and as compromises that I wasn't ready to make anymore. So at the, towards the end of my twenties, I had this kind of big breakdown moment that lasted about a year where I feel like my whole life unraveled and I was like, none of this could make sense anymore. And from that point on, I started reconstructing based on my actual values and ideals and decided to not hear the mainstream story uh, of what's not possible, but actually try to uh, forward my own path. And I feel like that's what I've been doing ever since. Still very much figuring it out, <laughs> but doing it through different experiments, some of them with youth education activists. So one I really care about is I co-founded an organization called Youth by Youth, which works with youth education activists globally to essentially teach them what I wish I was taught when I was in high school, which is don't lose your ideals and the world doesn't have to be the way that it is. You don't have to fit into it. You have to shape it in the way that you want to see it. And so reclaim your own learning as a way to make that happen. And uh, yeah, a bunch of different other experiments, which I'm sure we'll go into in this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And yeah, we actually have some parallels in our story. So I started my career in business as well <laughs> and became disillusioned, was working in in what many would call a dream job in global marketing at Microsoft and was traveling around the world and working with Fortune 100 clients and quickly just came to feel the meaningless of it and not just the meaninglessness of it, but the level of extraction and, and waste that was involved in being part of this company. There were many amazing things. I worked with really smart people and got to work on many creative ideas, but 
there was something from a values perspective that was missing. And that also prompted me to transition into the education space. And then having been in the public education sector for a while, I started asking all kinds of questions, trying to get at the root of why our public education system, at least here in the U.S., has ultimately been stagnant. That if you, even if you look at the, the most simplistic measures of student achievement, reading and math scores, the trend line is still pretty straight for the last 50 years. And the gap between the wealthiest students and the most marginalized students continues to grow. And so I was asking all these questions of why it is. And I quickly came to see that our education system is nested in other systems and connected to other systems like our food system and our environment. And that sort of took me in the direction of climate change. And I think my sort of lens has continued to broaden out from that to see how all of the various crises that we're facing today are interrelated and interconnected, and they have some underlying drivers that are common. And yeah, so that's what we've been exploring on this podcast, and we'll explore it a little bit more in our conversation. And there was a talk that you gave, I can't remember where, but you said you said something that really caught my attention, which is that education is the human-making function of society. Mm-hmm. And to reform our vision for education is analogous to reforming our vision for humanity. And after having worked in public education systems leadership for many years, I couldn't agree more. And I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit and particularly touch on why transforming education you believe is so critical to addressing the interrelated global crises that we're facing, whether we're talking about climate change or biodiversity loss or polarization or income inequality all of these various crises that are often called the meta crisis, but essentially why it's critical to avoiding collapse. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for actually picking that, that quote in particular, because I feel like it gets to the heart of something very important. And that also relates to what we've been talking about, which is our stories. Education shapes desires, the perpetuation of our current systems happens because we have education systems that shape desire in a certain way. And when I say education here, both our formal education systems and our informal education systems through entertainment, internet, all the way that we consume information around the world. And those two are actually very much designed with the nation state and capitalism in mind and with the perpetuation of existing systems in mind. So formal education systems today, their real purpose is the perpetuation uh, of the systems we're a part of and the creation of employees and the creation of of citizens with a very particular meaning of what citizen and what uh, kind of employee we're looking for. And so that's what the system is for. The reason why every other system can continue is because we're shaping humans in a certain way to have a certain way of thinking, a certain way of being in the world that promotes that. So when you start looking even at the shape of a school where you sit for a certain amount of time and then you have a bell that tells you when to move and when not to move, apart from even the content, like behavior, you are, you're conditioned in a certain way through the format of a school. And so what I've been 
I feel like delving into more and more is how this format is not random. It's not because we needed to process more people. There's very much a design at play that needs to be like start to see the different threads and untangle them and see what is it that we actually, who is it that we actually want to be as a humanity. I think you probably have come across and and assuming many of your listeners have come across this notion of the big story of, of separation that we're perpetuating, where we have a notion of how we teach on the big questions like why what. Why am I here? Where, why are we here? How have we come to where we are now? All those questions are answered in a very, like with an ideology in mind. The fact that we are taught that we're individuals among other separate individuals in an ever-expanding universe where you have to compete in order to survive is the story that gets ingrained and then gets repeated. And you have all those behaviors that come across in the way that we end up living our lives because we're taught that we have to compete, that the world is hostile. We create the condition for humans to be that way and the world becomes that way because we are taught that way. And so I do genuinely believe that if we were to ask, who do we want to become? Who are, like, who can we be? And start with this notion of radical imagination. For us, we use that a lot in our program because we think it's not about improving marginally here and there, <laughs> how things are going to be, but actually be able to tap into this much broader, much, much, much more beautiful way of being in the world that we're capable of being today in some ways. So for me, it starts with this notion that we need to ask, who do we want to be? Like, at whether we think of the most beautiful way we can be in the world, where we think of the, what is the potential if we were to actually not to be stuck in our current story. And from there, maybe start to redesign education systems, this vision of humanity that is looking at our interconnection and our interbeing in much, much broader way. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And why do you think that now is the time for a massive revolution in education? What do you see as the broader context of the times that we're living in that makes this so critical? I think we're in the we're in a time between stories. We're in a time where our the dominant story of progress, of separation, of things will like the notion that things constantly can and will get better is completely breaking down. We are in as I'm a millennial and I see for Gen Zs as well, like millennials are now in the first generation who are poised to not do as well as the generation before them, right? So yeah. there's this notion that the promise of why it was worth it to even do those meaningless jobs or be part of this wheel, like all of those promises are breaking down. We're seeing just this summer, how many climate emergencies have we witnessed this summer? It's, it's insanity. Yeah. And we're seeing it and we're feeling it. And so I, I feel like collectively people are starting to realize like, this is not working. This is breaking down. And so that means that a space for possibility is being opened. And I feel like within this space, we have space to actually radically reimagine and think about the deeper transformation at play. And I don't think it's just education. I think exactly as you were saying earlier, the, the education and the food systems and the, the 
uh, climate, all of those things are not actually separate from one another. They're extremely tangled with one another. So to me, it's like a revolution in the deepest sense where all, where we're starting to see how the new systems can actually be mixed with one another. How can they be locked in a way that makes them mutually reinforcing with one another? Because what I find yeah, sometimes very constraining is that I see a lot of people who are like extremely passionate about education or about food systems or about, and they look at their little silo and think, how do we change that? But the truth is the system, the, the current system we're a part of is all of it works with one another in a way that all the pieces are moving with one another, making it harder to detangle them. So when we start thinking about transformation, I think it starts at the level of the story at the level of who do we want to be as human and then start to see what are some of those common levers across system that when we start thinking about transformation can start being complementary and being working with one another. And so probably that's one of our biggest challenges because having a holistic perspective takes quite a bit of coordination and I don't think we're quite good at coordinating yet. But one thing that gives me hope in that sense is that I see all those new technologies coming up which I don't think in the current systems will ever be used in a way that benefits humanity, but that still could be pathways towards those deeper forms of collaboration and wider forms of collaboration that could enable that holistic transformation. In some ways, I'm seeing lots of the seeds of the things that we need in order for transformation to happen. And that gives me yeah, quite a bit of hope, although I recognize the notion that hope is active. I have hope because I'm working on it and because you're working on it. And because I know many people who have that passion within them to make those transformations happen. Yeah, absolutely. I know you work with a lot of young people, and I'm curious about your sense of what does Gen Z think about their future, right? There's a large population of Gen Z that is aware of the climate crisis and the environmental destruction that's happening. And perhaps are aware of how many of the systems are interrelated, perhaps are aware of why our economic system that is based on exponential growth is tied to environmental destruction. And so I'm just curious as to what have you seen as a general sentiment amongst Gen Z about how they think about their future and their role within it? So the, uh, I will yeah, preface this by saying the Gen Zers I mostly work with are uh, a lot of the time already activists. So I, I feel like mm -hmm. the example that I have is the young people that are most wanting for change to happen. But generally what I'm noticing is that there is the sense that there isn't anything that we can promise them that they think is like solid ground. I feel like in some ways they're seeing the ground that they're on shifting. And for many, it's, there's a sense of possibility within that. And there's a sense that they can shape the future. I see them a lot of the time stepping into their power and saying, whatever future I'm currently being offered is not one that I believe in. And I think I can shape and we can, like, they, they really see, I think, the importance of linking with one another. So I see like forms of global solidarity showing up in ways that I find extremely interesting and, and just th there's vitality within that. And at the same time, I'm also really noticing the despair and the tiredness 
that for a long a lot of young people there there's a need for spaces around their well-being because the world isn't unraveling around them. And I, I work also mostly with young people in the global south and, and all over the African continent, Southeast Asia and whatnot. And like a lot of the challenges that we're talking about are not far off in the future for them. They're here and now. And so there there is this sense both of no one is going to give us what we need, so we need to go get it. And of we need to be there with one another because this is hard work and this is tiring. And this is, we recognize that psychologically, even somatically, there's levels of trauma that I feel like they're the ones truly addressing because they're, they're not hiding away from it. So in some way that I also see like they want to go fast, but they need to go slow. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's such an urgency to all the crises that there's a tendency to just want to be like, what are the solutions? What do we have to do? How do we get out of this mess? And yeah. that in some ways is part of the problem. As Exactly. For us, it's really important to move out of a solution mindset because it's not about one solution. It's about our capacity to come together over and over again in a way that we can hold each other through change, knowing that solutions are about to constantly evolve. I yeah, I've personally stopped believing in the possibility of a, any fixed solution. So for me, it's, it's constantly asking this question, and now how do I serve? And now how do I serve? Over and, and responding to the moment, not to the intellectualization of the problems, because we can get caught in, in believing that we found like a, the one thing that would help most or whatever. Yeah, we'll take it to the highest leverage action. Right? <laughs> We're trying to look for what is the highest leverage action. Uh, solutions of all solutions. I know, I think it's about new ways of being with one another. New ways of holding yeah. each other through that and giving enough space for all of us to actually take responsibility because no one is coming to save us. It's up to all of us at this point. And up to all of us to help each other when we're in that moment of not believing that is possible anymore. And when we're helped yeah. through that, just the fact that we are held shows you that other way of being it can be here and now. So part of it is also this notion for us of prefiguration. We're not just dreaming up of a future and then seeing maybe the million steps that we need to get there, but dreaming up of a future and then saying, if that future was here today, how would I be acting? Let me act that way today. I'm not going to wait for my perfect world to come true, to be the kind, loving uh, person that I want to be and that I wish the world was, but there's no, nothing holding you from showing up way today. And that to me is like how we reclaim our power. And that's something anybody can do in their life, no matter how little agency they feel that they have or how little resources they may have they have that capacity to show up in a way that is kind and that is wanting to be the embodiment of the change that they want to see in the world. I've started to shift my language away from talking about solutions to talking more about responses, because yeah, I yeah. think um, I absolutely agree with you. Like solutions implies this kind of you do this one thing and then it solves the problem and then you're done. And that's not how complex systems work. Yeah. They're <laughs> infinite. Yeah, I wish, right? Yeah. They're infinitely entangled with each other. They're constantly calibrating. They're constantly responding. 
And so our job, because we are humans that are also part of the natural ecosystem, not separate from it, is to also be constantly calibrating and responding. And I love the way that Zach Stein talks about this. He talks about education is the meta crisis, and he talks about navigating the meta crisis or finding our way through because it's not about solving it. There's no sort of solution to climate change. There's no solution to biodiversity collapse. There's no, there's, there's systems that have come into place and come into being over many decades and over many complex interactions. And so you, you can't just unravel them suddenly. Mm -hmm. And so you have to think about how are things evolving and devolving and what what can I be doing today? Because everything that we do has some sort of impact. We just don't know what it is. And yeah. we just can't measure it in the sort of scientific way that we try to measure everything. And so yeah. there's also, in my mind, this, we should create the models and we should use the science and we should use the data, but we have to hold these models lightly as sort of models of reality, not reality. Exactly. And always be kind of keep holding that in our minds so that we don't charge forward with something that we think is the solution or the right path forward without consideration for the fact that things are always changing all the time. Exactly. I, yeah, and I love that word, navigating. Uh, to me, it's, it's a model we use often and think about this North Star that we're navigating towards, almost like we're sailing in an ocean of unknowns and we're navigating with the stars. And so we have a sense of, well, how to move forward and how to, but knowing that, that all we can do is constantly shift a little bit towards where we think we can be going and constantly learn. Because at the end of the day, I, like, I feel like the, the person that I was a year ago or what I knew a year ago about our systems and what can and should be done, what I know now has changed so much so how can i trust that the me of today knows anything for what it's worth uh yeah. i trust that i trust that will like that the process of continuously learning with one another and not pushing each other aside when we think my solution is better my ideology is better but actually creating spaces of, of true dialogue where where as long as what we hold in common is a sense of we know we can do better than this. And we know that our most beautiful ways of being have not yet been expressed through the current systems that humanity have designed. So it's holding that. And, and I feel like, especially being part of activist spaces, for me, an essential thing when, when we are in these spaces is to make sure that we don't start putting each other, like getting into conflicts that are about ideologies or that mm. I know better better but truly create spaces where we can hold each other truly yeah uh maybe i see it too simplistically <laughs> in some ways but i'm convinced that there's no amount of pointing fingers or even when we look at systems we don't like those are the systems and the people are two things that i i try to like not equate with one another i feel like generally people think that they're going good doing good even when they part of systems that are destructive. So how do we create spaces where they can be held as well? It's to me where it starts getting interesting. We're not cheating each other 
but really looking at how do we move forward together out of the those models of of right and wrong and into models of love. If it's as simple as that, I'm not sure. But and I think history has plenty of examples of places where very well intentioned people got caught on a path that led to destruction because they held so tightly to their ideology of what they felt was right that they couldn't see beyond that. And they couldn't, they didn't remain open to what they were seeing unfold before their eyes. And so I think that's like a trap that, that anybody can get caught up into. And I think it's just this constant practice of zooming in and out and always questioning your own assumptions, always questioning your own motivations around why you feel this is the path to go and why you feel so strongly and why you're so attached to it. To me, doing something that seems sometimes missing from spaces of social impact where people are doing impact work, whether it's in education or it's in food systems or it's in climate, is this constant self-reflection and constant like the shadow work, this the personal growth, the, the development work that we all need to be doing. We're all part of, we're all growing, we're all changing constantly. And, and so always continuing to reflect back on your own personal motivations and, and whatever it is that you're bringing to the work, I think is also such an important part of the work that often just falls away. There's, I think there's a lot of conversation about like wellness and regeneration, but perhaps not as much about how do we become the humans that we need to become in order for this planetary transformation to happen. And one of the things I was thinking about as you were speaking about activist movements is that I've often seen analyses of activist action you know, after the fact. And people have tried to say, like, oh, was it a successful action or was it a successful movement or not? Um, and there's all kinds of things that have been written about the Occupy Wall Street movement. Yeah. I was living in New York City when that was happening. And it's so interesting because you know, I think there's many people that would say, like, oh, Occupy Wall Street was a failure because they weren't clear about what their goals were, or exactly what they were asking for. And yet years later, I've come across many people who are doing incredible work in different impact spaces that first got exposed to that yeah. work through Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. So just, I think it just reinforces this idea that you don't know where things will connect. You don't know the ripple effects and you can't measure something. Not that there's no place for that. Obviously, we've made many scientific advances because we've used data and we've been able to measure and there's a value to that. But, you know, I think going back to our education systems, we focus so much on that aspect of our ways of knowing, the, the sort of left brain oriented ways of knowing, like very analytical, very linear and we need to develop more of that right brain capacity, that ability to see the whole, the bringing the love, the creativity, the joyfulness, all of those, those, the beauty, like all of those things that you can't measure into the work as well. And so I guess that actually raises a question for me is in, in sort of the work that you've done so often in philanthropic spaces, whether you're you know, trying to raise funding or raise funding apply for a grant or whatever it is, there's you know, on the grant applications or the ways in which many philanthropic fund, uh, philanthropic organizations decide whether to give you money is a very 
reductionist, narrow ways, right? Basically, like, what's the problem you're solving? What are the specific metrics that you're going to use to measure whether you've achieved your goal? How quickly are you going to scale? How many cities are you going to be in? And so are you seeing that continue to be prevalent? And I suppose the follow-on question would be, how do you think a shift perhaps might happen in philanthropic spaces to say that there's value in doing work that cannot be measured? And there's value in funding work that cannot be measured. There's value in funding work that will take a long time for us to see the benefits of. Just curious to hear like your own you know, practical experience in that space. I'm glad you brought this up because it's still like at the moment, it's the challenge that is most on my mind. We've been lucky enough to have the support of a family foundation, but at the moment, inflation is bubbling everywhere. And the way we work with young people, for instance, is we make sure that young people are stipended for their work. Part of it is because we don't want that culture of if you're an activist, everything is volunteer. We want to actually create pathways to show young people this is actually something is worth it, like it has worth and should be valued. But at the same time, that means for us, as we're attracting more young people and, and supporting them to host spaces, they hold other young people. We're growing faster than we're raising money and constantly applying for different grants, which have been on a very challenging process, partly because of exactly what you're saying, which is not, not a lot of it is measurable. If what we're talking about is creating spaces where people can make sense of their world, where they can radically reimagine how it can be and then take action, there are some things that are measurable within that. But part of it, what we're trying to do is, is increase agency, sense of belonging, um, sense of efficacy. And it's, yeah, we're also really transparent about what we're doing, which is we're not wanting to improve education system. We're wanting to transform them. We want every young people to reclaim their education as theirs, our, to shape the world. And that often means for us, it, what we found out so far is that it's not necessarily a message that resonates with traditional philanthropies that are looking to improve education in many ways, are looking to make sure that some gaps are filled, that more people have access to enrollments or, and all those things for us are obviously extremely important, but just not the piece of the puzzle that we're interested in, in driving. Yeah, I'm honestly like, at this moment, you got to me at the moment uh, where we're, we're extremely challenged to think about how in a time where we have so many more young people interested in being part of our programs and wanting to remunerate them fairly, how do we attract funders who are interested in that? And if she'll, yeah, for me, it's more of a question that is answered at this point. And yeah, uh, I, yeah, I'm honestly at the loss with this question. I see some funders trying new things, but it's like few and far between. And generally, like, I've been, like, I've heard a lot of efforts from philanthropists rethink how they do philanthropy and whatnot. I do think there are signs of things moving in an interesting direction when it comes to that. We're still very far away from models of philanthropy that actually fund transformation because a lot of philanthropy is not based on, on, on that at all. So it's, yeah, recognizing that 
and recognizing that money is a limiting factor and that measurements are a limiting factor to getting money. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's it's like such a clear example of this sort of vicious cycle that can happen when you've got people who are now running these philanthropic organizations who have been brought up in a more sort of traditional linear thinking style education system that is very much about break things down into their component parts, identify specific metrics, measure them, and then invest more where you see, you know, the return, right? Maximize the return on the investment. Like even that language is so prevalent in the philanthropic space. And I guess one of the things I'm curious about, because I think you're doing some of this work with Youth by Youth, is around how do we train young people to be more systemic thinkers, to understand that everything is interrelated and it is complex. And, and it goes back to this idea, what we were talking about earlier about separation, that that we are not all separate beings. We are actually very interconnected and interrelated and interdependent. Like, I do not exist without the microorganisms in my gut, without the food that grows in the soil, without the rain and the sun that creates that food. Like These ideas of complete independence and individual individualistic cultures that are particularly prevalent in the West are just, they're just myths. <laughs> they're not real. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to what you were saying about we need to shift our stories, but I'm curious to hear about how young people have been responding to the work that you're doing that is more systemic. Like, does it feel natural to them? Does it feel completely different from what they're learning in school? I'm just curious to hear a little bit about how it's been landing with them. Oh, so sure. So I want to give you the example of two programs that run that have very much exactly that question that you're asking in mind. Yeah. And actually, before you do that, maybe you could just also give us, because I know what Youth by Youth is, but maybe you could give us a quick, yeah. quick overview of what it is yeah. to the people that can That's fair. <laughs> youth by Youth is a, a community of young people and adult allies uh, that aim to put young people in the driving seat of transforming education systems. Uh, with the idea that uh, education systems should be serving uh, our collective liberation. That's very broadly what we do. And then there's a number of different programs that we design with that in mind. And our, I guess most of our programs have as an underlying structure, a very simple pedagogical framework, the repeating circle, which is what is, what if, what now. So what is, is sense-making and meaning-making. What if, is radical imagination and what now is how do you take personal and collective action uh, in a conscious way so really with the idea of the more you understand the issue and needing to start with with the a deepening of understanding and constantly going back to that circle once you've done it once you've not understood it forever but having that continuous learning approach so one of the program that we that we run is called the weavership it's actually an 11 month in the common terms, we'll call that maybe a fellowship. It's an 11 month program where youth education activists are going through essentially first six months of what I would call more or less like theory of social change, where we go into understanding what is systems thinking. And the way that we do it is like this expanding circle. We start with the story, which I think is 
the simplest way and answering your question as well. Once we start with the story, there's this immediate aha moment where they're like, oh, I get it. This is why we need to weave. We're weavers of a new story. And we need to have that holistic understanding. And they understand that separation is a myth, at least yet with the young people that we've been very lucky to attract and be part of our community. They get it immediately. And then we have those expanding circles about what does it mean to weave yourself? What are the parts of yourself that are right now not welcomed by you or disintegrated? And how do you do that work continuously? And then how do you weave relationships? And how do you weave communities? And then we talk about ecosystems and we finish with movements. And so it's this expanding circles where we look about at this notion that, yeah, weaving is that eating, the, linking the different threads in a way that we can start having holistic visions. And so, and then they, they go into holding spaces for other people, for other young people, for, for five months, uh, which is our, we call them the global action circles. And so essentially every young people who's gone through this training and also we talk a lot about what it means to hold space for change. How do we facilitate spaces where people can show up as who they are and just what does it mean to be present with what is in the space? And so creating the, the conditions for them to be holders of, of new spaces of learning. And then during those global action circles, they hold space for about 10 to 12 other young people in pairs. And what happens is that everyone comes with their own learning question. And then they meet every other week where they have a process of seeing how that inquiry is evolving for them using this what is, what if, what now. And that culminates with our annual learning festival where all the young people showcase what they've been doing either for 11 months or five months, depending on whether they're a host of a space or a participant. So it's, it's uh, yeah, part of it is creating new spaces of learning and really having those conversations. And for us, we move very fast into, we teach for a little bit and then we create spaces for you to trust yourself and to hold others because it's not about content necessarily. It's about mindsets and frameworks that you, that can support you to do that. And the second example I wanted to give you about how, how we've been thinking about how do you have this holistic approach is what we're calling the local hubs. So there's local hubs in different spaces right now in, in Lagos, in Nigeria, in, in uh, Uganda, in two places, in Naki Valley Refugee Camp and in Kampala, in Cameroon, and yeah, other cities where the idea is that the young people are really thinking about an issue that they care about in their community and then mapping their ecosystem and bringing the ecosystem together. So it's young people who are at the center of shifting the power and bringing the ecosystem at the table to say, here's this issue that we all care about. You're affected by this issue. You're an organization that's trying to do something about it. You're all those, the, you're a government that is or like a, a, a teacher in a school that is trying to address this in your own way. Let's all look at it and actually look at the ecosystems that we're dealing with to see what are the gaps, what are the places where we feel that we can be collaborating more effectively. How do we start looking at what we do in a way that is no longer siloed? So that's maybe our most like concrete on the ground program. 
most of the other programs are more or less like individual journeys that are personal action wherever they are. And then we have that global solidarity to hold you in the belief that there are other young people like you who are trying to change things. And that can be in global solidarity with one another in their learning process. That none of us have the answers, that all we do is learn with one another and hold each other through change. I love the practical nature of the program, that you're not just doing the teaching and the sort of content, but it's actually like, how do you bring this to life in real life? Because there's you know, oftentimes with learning programs, especially if they're online, and I think, I think your work is hybrid, right? There's some online components and there's some in-person components, but you learn all these things, you meet incredible people, and then you're done with, with the course and you're like, well, now what do I do <laughs> when you're not clear as to what's the, like, how do I bring this into my real life? So I love this, this, the way that you've structured this is to really give young people agency to take this and run with it like yeah. throughout the entire work. From the beginning, we started involving young people in the design. And actually, we're now at the point where we have a team of young people and most of what we're doing is coaching them, not necessarily being the one like designing anymore. So it feels yeah, now we're in our third year of operation and the first two years were like, I think, yeah, essentially since the beginning of like January, February, we decided we've put the foundation in place and now we're meant to be, we call it uplifters. So what we do most of the time is have calls, like individual calls with people on our team uh, and beyond where the idea, you uplift the person, you give them confidence in themselves and give them guidance when they feel like they need it. But I feel like a huge part of it is actually having people trust themselves trust like their own curiosities, their learning processes, and just having sometimes like an adult in your life that tells you like, I trust you and I'll ask you a question just to explore together, gives them a framework where I've seen incredible growth from the people in our team, for instance, without having to push or say, this is what you need to know, but how can you trust yourself better? Because a lot of our education system is prefaced on the idea that you need to follow and learn and have the right answer, not trust your own self and your intuition and what you're curious about. And, and certainly not like we're not taught how to learn. So a lot of it is also creating processes where we have peer-to-peer -peer learning because we're in a new process of reclaiming our learning and our education for ourselves. Uh, and so much of our traditional education system is one-way learning. It, it's like the teacher is teaching the student but as if the teachers don't have anything to learn from the exactly. students, right? If there's no sort of two-way interaction. That, of course, it's it happens in the classroom and it happens with the best yeah. teachers, but the system itself is sort of structured around fostering that kind of two-way yeah. interaction. Exactly. Yeah. And it's also recognizing that everything that we're teaching, once you start getting at the edge of what we're teaching, we no longer know. First, also like trusting that if we teach, like, if what we have in common is how to learn and support each other in a, a ways of learning, then the rest, you don't actually need a traditional teacher to give you fixed answers because the answers are not fixed. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I know what you're going to say to this, but I'm going to ask yeah. it anyway. <laughs> you know, there's many really smart, bright, well-intentioned people who have been working on educational reform for many years, especially here in the United States. 
why do you think the education reform movement has failed to transform public education in any meaningful kind of way since we created the industrial model of education? That's a great question. Yeah, I think when we're looking at the drivers behind our traditional education system, which is yeah, the creation of people who can be employed, it is so limiting. It is actually so limiting. And so part of it is, I, like, it's not that I don't, I think maybe it is that I don't believe in reform. <laughs> because yeah. I, I, mean, I don't either. I worked in that sector for a long time and I don't either. I was always the person who was questioning the assumptions that were coming into the room and saying, okay, we're trying to solve for this thing, but actually, does the thing even make sense? Should we maybe change the assumption or the question that we're going into this with? It's what's the deeper why of why we're doing those things. If it is to improve this specific number in order to get voted in a certain way, like the whole structure is corrupt in some ways. So it's, it's not calling on our, it's not calling on our humanity, actually. It's trying to fix things as if it wasn't humans on the other side uh, of those changes. And a lot of the times that also means like top-down changes where teachers have waves and waves of the new reforms that are coming their way without being part of any pieces of that process. And so it feels so disconnected. And I feel like, yeah, that alienates a lot of people along the way that just feel like they're the receivers of change as opposed to the ones that are in charge of their classrooms, of their schools, of themselves. So it's this whole model of taking agency away from people and then hoping that they're going to do whatever you tell them to do. I think people are, are resentful. And so at the end of the day, maybe it's a simple answer to think that way, but I think it does require all of us being fully in charge of all of ourselves. No one is coming to save you. And no one is coming to tell you what you need to know. So trusting that we can be fully responsible for ourselves and we can have that power to change things around us, I think is the fundamental shift from what is it that needs to be fixed without seeing the real people behind it. Yeah, and I feel especially in the U.S., there's so many waves of reform that now people are completely numb to it in some ways. Yeah, or you're just seeing, you're seeing tremendous attrition. Uh, all these amazing leaders that are leaving the yeah. education sector. Because exactly of what you said, and yeah, I think I, I had thought of this, but sort of the way that you said it got into my mind in a different way. But this model of taking agency away, like we built the education system, really taking agency away from young people to dictate how their learning should take place. But now we've gone so far as to even take the agency away from the adults in the room who are teaching the students. So this complete lack of agency throughout the entire system has resulted in something that is turning out a society that is like not the one that any of us would actually want to live in. Yeah. And I guess that we've been talking about this, but just to make it more explicit, why do you feel like a youth-led transformation movement in education is the path forward? reasons. And I would say youth-led, adult-supported. Because I don't think it's about excluding the adults from the community. And that's why youth by youth is intergenerational in nature. But I think if we are to reclaim our full selves and young people being the, 
the main population, the way that I think about it sometimes is if you were to think about how do you have a, a revolution happen out of a political system into a new one, for instance, it requires people saying, we no longer want this, we want that. And so it requires literally the, the citizens to say no. And to me, it's the same with education. The main population of education is young people. And as much as we can imagine, yeah, trip, I don't think there can be a transformation from above. The students and the young people themselves need to say, no, we no longer want to learn that way. And in some way, the beauty of it is that they're teaching their parents about that. I see a lot of the time young people who, for instance, decide to leave traditional education models to do unschooling or to find another alternative schools, be the ones teaching their parents why it matters to them. And so you end up having this wave of change where because young people take ownership for their lives, they're like, they teach the adults why it matters. See this youth-led transformation is not just important as the only way transformation is going to happen. Transformation can't be imposed from above. It has to be young people saying, this is how we want things to look different. And this is how we might be able to do it. So, yeah. And I think in many ways, even when you think about the theories of systems change and how change happens, you like something, there has to be space for something new to seep in, right? If you're using your old models of thinking, your old ways of learning to try to change the system, the old is always going to come into the new. So the adults, like we, the adults, maybe not you, because you're much younger than I am, but the the adults in the room in in many of our school systems have been trained in the old model. So it's almost impossible for them to create the new model because in some ways they can't even perceive it. And so the young people, an opening for the young people who haven't yet been steeped in it, contribute to offer something that is a completely different way of looking at the world. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about what is even the purpose of education. If our entire system has been built around a purpose of education to feed the capitalist machine and to create workers, which as we know it has, then if you as a young person don't, let's you think capitalism is bullshit. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to be part of a capitalist system, right? Like capitalism is causing the destruction of the planet. I'm not looking to get a job. I'm not like, that's not what I want my life to be about. Then the ways in which you think about what is the learning that's required for me to show up in my purpose and do the work in this world, is going to look very different from the things that we measure on standardized test score. Yeah. And there's something that I think needs to be said here, we're not looking for the perfect model to replace traditional education with. We're looking for models and everyone being the person that is the expert on what they need. And so having that full, for me, liberation is responsibility. I see them as two sides of, of one coin, that you're free, you're fully in charge of your whole self. And that doesn't just mean you, like it means also how to take responsibility for others, how to be a, a, a supporter of others and create those kind of environments. And the way that I see it as well is that if young people manage to make that transformation happen, both for themselves 
and for the systems they're a part of, they will be learning the main thing they need to learn, which is how to transform systems. Everything needs to be transformed. So if that's the education they need. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But so, so you mentioned the annual learning festival, sort of the culmination of, of in, some, in some ways, the work that some of the young people are doing. Are there any kind of stories or bright spots or things that you can share that you've seen sort of young people go off and then do in their own communities after they've participated in, in the fellowship program? Oh, so many. And <laughs> you, if you want uh, to you and your listeners, the, a bunch of the stories of young people sharing in their own voice. Yeah. Even totally. projects have come out of Youth by Youth. And at the end of the day, what they do is they look at their own circumstances and how they can take action and what they care about being able to serve and just take action. And ways that we've seen that happen, for instance, is I'll give you a, a few examples that are coming to mind. We have one young person who decided to focus on sanitary products in their school and making sure that no girl is not attending school because she doesn't have a pad. We have young girls in, in Afghanistan who are looking at creating underground models where they can meet with other young people or other young girls who have been stopped from being able to go to school and use the internet and all the incredible online learning that exists in the world to be able to not stop their education, but find ways that they can support each other through the craziness that they, they are currently being put through with the, the Taliban regime. All those ways that young people can be in solidarity with one another, we're, we're seeing, because at the end of the day, it, it does require actions. It does require tying yourself with others and believing that solidarity is a way to do that. And that doesn't mean that the action is the solution that's going to solve everything. It's all of those ways that we actually start showing up for one another. And so we've seen, yeah, an extraordinary number of, of different youth projects taking place that really are about what they care about in the communities that they're a part of. This abstract global transformation, as much as I believe in the importance of that, I think every step that we take towards that is what matters. But we have a, a motto that we borrow from Adrian Murray Brown, which is small is all, small is everything. And so Truly believing that it's the ripples of change that we're trying to create. Not, it's, we're not believing that it's going to take one mega big thing, but all those little projects and all those young people saying, I trust myself a little more today. Uh, I'm going to take action in a different way. Yeah. So it's honestly what keeps me going um, personally because we're seeing the multiplicity of ways of showing up in the world that actually challenge our current model just by by showing up differently. Yeah, that's beautiful. And yeah, I think so many of us get stuck in trying to think so big picture. These these global challenges that we're facing are so big that it feels like, oh, what's like my little community garden that I'm going to start in my neighborhood? What kind of impact is that actually going to have or whatever it might be? And there's a trap in that, right? Which is that so often you see well-intentioned people working at global change and working at big scalable projects that end up externalizing harm somewhere else because they don't fully understand the scope of what it is, of the impact of what it is that they're doing because perhaps they're not 
as connected to the communities on the ground that are going to experience the work, or perhaps they're bringing their own preconceived notions or assumptions into the work. And so the bigger, you know, I, I sometimes I think about the, you know, the Dunbar number, right, which is like human societies used to really function in, in tribes of about 150 people, because that's at the scale that our human brain can actually hold all the things that we need to hold in order for societies to live in harmony, in order to not destroy our environments, in order to have a sense of what the impact of what we're doing is, in order for there to be moral bindings in place. Right? Like, yeah. Oh, I, I can't do this shitty fucked up thing because... I only live with 150 people and somebody's going to find out about it and then I'll be like shunned from the community. So in our globalized societies where we've lost that and then we jump to like, what's the big global solution? In many ways that can lead to so much harm and destruction, especially if you are not trying to take as, as much of a systemized thinking approach to it to what could be the potential unintended consequences of this? Who is going to be impacted by this? What could happen long term? What are the perverse incentives at play? And, and even if you do a, a very thorough analysis of all of those things, you're never going to know the impact yep. of the work. And so the smaller scale the project is, I think the better handle you have on some of those things. And then, and, and then you learn from that, right? And, and then that can grow. And then perhaps that grows in a way that's not like you going and scaling and launching this thing in multiple cities, but you sharing what you're learning. And then somebody who lives somewhere else picks that up and then does it in their way, in their community, very localized. Like those are the places where I keep, I'm seeing more of the profound change happening. Yeah. Not to say that nobody should be working on the global issues. We need to be working on those things. And there's many things that are outside of the kind of purview of impact that the average person can have that are also putting us on a path towards civilizational collapse. But I think if, it can often be a trap to not getting started at all yeah, because yeah. you think your project is too small. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, the global dimension is really interesting when we're talking about global learning and global solidarity, but not, I don't, I've also lost my belief in the importance of scaling. And, and that's why I keep coming back also to the model of personal responsibility. And so for me, it's the more we see, the more we're responsible for ourselves, the more we see that our every action matter. There's nothing that you're going to do today that has no consequence. And so once you start seeing that, like in everything that you do, there can be harm where there can be beauty and meaning and you start taking responsibility for that to me those ripples are much more important than trying to tenfold the number and then tenfold it again especially as as people who've seen i think in the past like few maybe <laughs> with the millennium development goals and sustainable development goals and whatnot seen so much effort being put that can be unraveled in a, in a second covid unraveled so much of the education progress that supposedly had been done or the, these models of we're going to try to make sure that everyone has a school and then you're building schools and schools and then you do an analysis and you realize 40 percent of the kids that have gone through those schools have no learned nothing putting a building and a few people in it yeah. does not make an education system so it's to me yeah, like 
it's, it's fundamental that we move out of models that are trying to say we found the thing and then we're going to scale it maximally. We are the thing <laughs> and we're going to show up in a way that maximally takes into consideration the way that we show up in the world with both humans and non-humans, with all the world around us, with the, the love for, for a microbiome. <laughs> Maybe it's all those small things that I feel like once we start seeing, we start everyone being a person that has that full, almost like the full embodiment of their power, then I, then it's almost like change is inevitable at that point. Uh, and, you know, I think about how humans learned before, like before we created these industrialized education systems that were essentially built on like a factory model. Like at the time that they were built, it was when we had factories and we needed workers for factories. So as you were saying, the design was very intentional. Like you work on this thing for a bit, then the bell rings and you move on to something else. Like it was very much modeled after the factory. And there was a time where we didn't used to send our kids away yeah. to some building where they're separated from their community and their elders and their grandparents and their parents and put into these little boxes to do their quote unquote work where the learning was just embedded within everyday spaces, the intergenerational learning yeah. and the sort of ways of learning how to be with humans and with other people. And I just feel, I wonder if we've just broken something by even just the system, like taking kids out of the home for eight hours a day and sending them to a building that is separated from their families. In particularly, I think a lot about the intergenerational piece, like being separated from grandparents and from elders and from so much of the wisdom that that I think we need more than ever in this time. Like we need those old stories. We need that wisdom um, because e even, you know, I've been trained in the traditional systems. Now, I, I think very differently from what I was taught because I took a very intentional approach to my own learning yeah. outside of school because I've, because I'm somebody sort of oriented towards learning and I've, I'm a constant learner and like my education never really ended. Yeah, nor is but, it going to. <laughs> yeah, nor is it going to. But I do think about how much was lost because even growing up, I didn't value the sort of traditional practices that, you know, my parents learned from their grandparents that they had to pass down. Yeah. So there just it seems to me that there's been something lost by even just this function, like sending kids away to be separated, like, go learn. And obviously, it's a function of our of the way our society is structured. Well, you have to send the kids away because the parents have to work and the parents can't work when the kids are around. <laughs> so it's this it's a very tricky thing to kind of unravel. But I do feel like there is something that has been lost in that Absolutely. transition. So I've been looking a lot at that question, actually, especially because I'm, I'm looking at the ways that education was used. Sorry, that's it. Yeah, I'm looking at the ways that education was instrumentalized as a way to colonize the African continent. And so a lot of the myth around that, for instance, was that there was no education before colonization. And the truth is that maybe there, there was a bit of schooling, but mostly there was no schools before. 
But education, every society has had education since the beginning of time. Like since it's thinking that we were not thinking about how we educate each other. And this notion, again, going back to the first question you asked of the human making function of society, that's what education is. And in many ways, the way we've siloed our lives has made it so that so that our our the ways that we human is no longer in relationship. You're removed from your parents and from your elders in that process. You're removed from what you need to learn from where you are. You're removed from the food systems that sustain you. And all of that means to me, uh, the way that I think about it is we're not just looking for alternative schools. We're looking for alternatives to schools. And I stop believing in the importance of having a separate building where you need to take people and say, now you're doing this every hour. Maybe we need like centers that are intergenerational and that are just dedicated to the love of learning and to our curiosities and where that can happen in a much more way and in a way that actually takes into consideration what we need to know today. I, For instance, for me, like I left my, my house when I was 17 because I graduated from high school and then I from Morocco, as I mentioned, and went to Canada to study, I knew nothing about how to keep a house, how to cook, how to take care of myself, how to spend money, how to save money. None of that, none of the act of living was considered education. And so it's all of those ways that actually were who we can be by removing education from life. Yeah, Zach Stein um, wrote this brilliant book called Education in a Time between world countries. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things he talks about in there is that, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like we think of education, like they have to be these school buildings where kids get sent, but what if they're not? What if they're, what if they're pods integrated into our communities? What if we're, you know, there's all this talk of teacher shortages. Do we have a teacher shortage? Do, Do we have a shortage of elders who are interested and willing and excited to teach our children? Maybe not. Like the, all the grandparents who would love to be involved in educating our young people, but perhaps don't have pathways or don't know what that would even look like. Like there's all these opportunities to learn from people of more of that like traditional apprentice or kind of guildship model that we've completely lost yeah. that I think and it's and it's funny, right? Because it took a crisis like COVID to start seeing some of that start to pop up organically. Like when kids couldn't go to school, you started to see more of these like organic, smaller community pods and parents taking turns to, you know, be there, like facilitate the education and then to work part of the time. And you started to see some of these things popping up. So I think it's interesting to me always to see like what actually happens in a crisis, because what happens in a crisis is the thing that people actually want. <laughs> like for some reason, when we're not in crisis mode, we like we are our, our, like linear mechanistic thinking brain into play. And then we come up with all kinds of things that are not the actual response to what yeah. we need. But in the crisis, it like tears all of that away because you're just in the mode. What what do I need to do today? What matters right now in this moment? What makes sense? You recenter relationships in the. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's something I think that has also been lost in our 
education system that relationships aren't put at the center anymore. Yeah. I often think like how bad it is actually in some ways that our older people are feeling more and more isolated. In some ways, I feel like it has a, a huge impact on kind of a very different topic, but like on how countries become more and more like fundamentalists because mm. older people are not in contact with younger people. So they're not seeing how the world is changing. They don't have that pulse of change is constantly happening. They're like, they're holding on to a view of the world because there is no communication with younger people. I also often think about how I see those older people as becoming older, not becoming elders and missing that kind of essential rite of passage where there is that exchange that starts to happen and how much of a loss that is. Can you imagine? I don't know. I feel like by the time I get old, I sure hope that I would be part of communities where I'm still in contact with younger people and able to have that vitality around me. Separating, yeah, separating older people and saying, okay, you've done your thing, you've earned your retirement, like staying your retirement to home a lot of the time in the U.S., it is so depressing and such a loss of the worth of a life. There's no Absolutely. one to hear those stories anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were talking about, this two-way learning. We, we've lost that sense that you can learn from, that we can learn from each other. Older, older people have things to learn from younger people and vice versa. It's interesting, right? Because when the narrative, when the dominant narrative that you hold is that I'm the older person, so I have something to teach you, then the ways in which you show up with a young person is also very different, right? Then you don't show up in a way that is curious, that is asking questions, that is trying to learn from their perspective, that is trying to integrate their ideas. You show up in a way that's very much let me teach you what I know. And of course, there's value in that, but it's, it's in the two-way exchange. That's where the change happens, is in that relationship. Exactly, exactly. In the in-between and in acknowledging that no matter how young a person is, they're full human already. They're not, they're, they don't need you to teach them to be full. They are already a full and whole person. And that makes them immensely fascinating if you're paying attention to it. But yeah, I feel if we put relationship at the center of new models of education, and if we start recovering that, we would have done something pretty incredible already. For instance, yeah, we see a lot of our young people and in our intergenerational groups focusing on this aspect of wanting to have more communication with elders, communities where that happens a lot more, which, yeah, as I mentioned, because it's mostly people from the global south. Maybe it's not as pronounced as the global north. I feel like in the global north, it's gotten to a very high pitch where, yeah, there are things that I'm seeing here that sometimes I'm just like, that's, it's just so sad. Like for instance, in Morocco, we don't really have retirement homes because we assume that your retirement home is the family, the family is going to be able to hold. But again, if you're a worker that has to spend so much time giving your life and hours away to this corporation or it, it just takes away any chance of actually being in the world. Yeah. Or you, you're barely just getting by taking care of your own sort of immediate nuclear family, your own children that you can't, you don't even have the resources or the capacity to take care 
of your own parents as they age. That's a situation that I think many people are finding themselves in in the global north want to take in their older parents. They, they can't. They don't have the resources and the ability to support them. They don't have the space in their homes or whatever it might be. And that's and, by design. <laughs> and it is by design. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The retirement industry's got to make some money, right? <laughs> All those nursing homes. Let's not get into that. One other thing, um, I know we're getting close to the end of our time, but one other thing that I wanted to touch on with you was you've also co-founded something that um, I think is brilliant called the Weaving Lab. Yeah. So, yeah, certainly. So the Weaving Lab is actually a community of practice for weavers globally. And weavers are people who put that holistic approach in their way of addressing social change. So we think both about the system, systems and ecosystems, like the human and non-human dimension in how social change can happen. So really put collaboration at the center, um, looking at kind of the interconnection between people, places, and projects, and how to center new models towards weaving that new story. And so the Weaving Lab gathers people who believe in that. And then every couple of weeks, we meet up and someone else in the community offers a model that they've tried and has been successful for them. And, or we also have like story sharing sessions and case clinics and all the different ways that we believe that as a global community of people who have that ethos in common, we can learn from one another. And uh, yeah, initially I became a co-founder of the Weaving Lab five years ago already. <laughs> We're actually 16 co-founders at the Weaving Lab. So it's an extremely horizontal organization where there's yeah, the rotation system at play as well. And initially the first kind of in-person gatherings that had happened back in 2019. Yeah, 2018 and 2019. Initially it was very much more focused on the in-person element. And there was a cohort of weavers focused on education that were brought together to think about how do we weave education transformation locally and globally. And I think for me at that time, it responded to this need that I was feeling that I was at the moment in my life where I was like exposed to a lot of education leaders and being part of lots of international conferences that I had, that I felt very privileged to be a part of. But at the same time, I felt this sense of, I see so much awesome innovations and I don't see momentum towards any form of transformation. So it's like all those innovations are fantastic, but they're not linked in any way that creates that momentum toward deeper change to take place. So starting to see the limits of that, like if you're close to social innovators that is doing something great and you get to beneficiate from it, fantastic, but then your system is not actually changing. And so seeing the limits of that and being part of that new space where people are really focused on how do we actually weave each other together to start that momentum towards deeper change made me feel like I found my community. And so I started getting more and more involved until I, I became a co-founder in that space, which with COVID ended up becoming much more online and much more focused on the aspects around community of practice. Although we do sometimes have in-person around specific localities, much less global. So for instance, we had... There's some incredible initiatives now that are happening in Colombia, where initially it started with uh, kind of this COVID response group 
And now they're looking at how do we weave ecosystems of transformation, weaving together those different initiatives. It started with peacemaking and responding to the needs of population. And now it's getting much more holistic in their approach. So it's fascinating also to see that dialogue between the local and global taking place. Yeah, I love that. What might you say to education system leaders who are you know, tirelessly working to provide better education options for our children, but are working, but they're like working in the current system. What, what might you, what would you advise them? That's an excellent question. I think <laughs> probably, is there a young person in your life that you might be able to talk to about what you're doing and how might you others in your work so that you can take a break sometimes as well <laughs> to think how much of that work shows like like putting effort and effort instead of actually trying to see who can get involved so that those things can happen organically and that everyone does a little because we all care about it as opposed to if I do all the effort and make all the work happen in the world then, then maybe it will change but really look I'd say find your allies and there's a lot of young people who want to be your allies share power when you can and have those conversations when you can yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think it's the, if I reflect back on my time working in education, the most transformational experiences for me, I think, were those moments where we gave students the microphone, mm. where we involved them in the discussions, where we invited them to the conferences, where we, you know, had like roundtable discussions and asked them questions like, what, what, do you, what would you want to change? What would you want to see happen? One thing that our young people see yeah. very often is nothing for us without us. Not yeah. complicated. <laughs> it's it's not at all that complicated. And I mean, it's just, it's like the way that adults would want to be, right? Like we don't want things done to us either. <laughs> you know, kids get to a, a pretty young age. They have the agency and they have the capability to direct their own learning yeah, at like yeah. an age younger than many of us think. Absolutely. Curiosity is innate. Curiosity only goes down because you're imposed what you have to learn. I see so many yeah. examples of, of young people who, who is a young person like that. I feel like I was extremely curious and I lost my curiosity along the way and I had to it. So if we were to actually let young people trust themselves, I don't think, I think what we would see would be pretty extraordinary. I feel like a lot of adults are like, oh, if we let them be, wouldn't they just procrastinate? They're like, they procrastinate because you force them to do things all the time. If you weren't forcing them, they would have no reason to procrastinate. The world is a fascinating place. If you're not, if your curiosity is not beaten out of you because you're being imposed, like constantly told what to do and how to do it and when to do it, you have no reason to stop being curious. And I also think that we are in a very different time where the advent of social media and artificial intelligence and all of these things that we many of us did have to contend with when we were growing up we have young people now who you know these systems were built to be addictive these mechanisms were built to hijack the limbic brain and to get people to stay on whatever platform that they're on for as long as possible and so i think there's also you know i i have a 5 year so he's he's too young now. He's too young to be for me to be thinking for me to be that worried about social media at this, right at this moment. It's going to change pretty quickly. Yeah. 
Um, but I think about that. Like there is a difference between two or who are who sort of thrived in like a homeschool or an unschooling environment or or a place where they had self-directed learning and versus now where you have these situations where if they have access to devices, then the context in which their learning has shifted also. Yeah. Their attention is being hijacked in ways that they don't have control over. Yeah. You know, it's something I think about as a parent is like, how do you balance all of those things? How do you provide the agency? How do you give them the space to be able to pursue that the things that they're learning? But also know that if they have access to a device that they can easily be hijacked into ways that aren't good for them. And what do you do with all of that? And it's yeah. a much longer conversation. <laughs> yeah, that one is definitely quite multifaceted and complex question but for instance like in our community we've seen many people many young people who just don't want to deal with social media anymore um, so there's also more and more young people who are recognizing the harm that it's doing for them and are actively wanting something else we're also seeing a bunch of young people who are wanting to go back with the knowledge of the land so a significant portion of the young people we work with have been trying to train in different farm environment and realizing that the slowness is what they need to make sense of the world and that this frenetic social media environment is not going to help them make sense of anything and so in many ways there we see both extremes in, in some ways of just people are saying not for and that i think if you if we're capable of having those conversations with them many young people realize that on their own and decide to not go down that path and at the same time, of course, when you have some of the best brains in the world that are hired to make you as addicted to your device as possible or to make you spend as much time on an app as possible, it feels like the odds are, are a little bit working against us in some ways. And I, I don't think that's just for young people. I think adults, addiction to social media is not much better at all. Yeah. But the consequences yeah. can be a lot worse for young people because if they do that early, as we've seen, yeah, there's uh, mental health consequences that can be very dire. So I feel like before a certain age, it's also the parents' responsibility to support their kids to not to have to mimic them on social media. I don't think I'm necessarily someone who would say you need to have a lot of rules with kids. But I think when you recognize that there's a device that is meant to play on all your cognitive biases for you to want to spend as much time on it as possible, you need support. So what I've seen happen as well as like groups of parents, group, groups of parents and young people who decide to have a few days without phones and they do it at the same time so that the, the, their kids never feel like, oh, I'm the one making that decision on my own and then I can't speak to my friends and I'm the one who's excluded. But if you actually do it in groups, then you have a much better chance of making that happen because then it's, we know that like, there's going to be certain hours where none of your friends are going to be available and it's not going to be just you. Yeah, you're not missing out on something. Exactly. Yeah. And, and parents co yeah. coming together and young people coming together to do that is how I think we can actually start kind of like fighting back, although not a huge yeah. language, <laughs> a huge fan of the kind of language that is around fighting. 
Yeah, no, but yeah, I absolutely like you can't as a parent be like, don't spend so much time on your devices and then you be spending so much time on your devices and then they're watching you being like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Role modeling yeah. parenting is probably yeah. the biggest thing yeah. that parents need to be aware of. And, and I'm happy to hear, um, it gives me hope that you're sharing that there are so many young people who have, like the veil of social media has been lifted for them right. and so sort of uninterested you know, they're getting less and less interested in it because they kind of see it for what it is. And um, that's that's hopeful. Yeah. We're much more intentional about it. Yeah. Well, we are coming to the close of our time. Um, just one last question, which is who would you like to platform on the podcast? I, the name that's coming for me right now is uh, uh, Victoria Harrow. of a university called Universidad de Mijuambia, or I don't know what the translation is in English. It's a university in Mexico, the first environmental university in Mexico, who also has actually a, a weaving program and is one of the co-founders of the Weaving Lab. Yeah, she's an incredible systems thinker, has been a friend, mentor, and just, yeah, I think you'll find that that there's a lot of topics that you can get into with her, both in like climate change, education. And, uh, so yeah, I think you'd have a fantastic conversation with her if you have a chance. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. And I would, if you feel comfortable making a connection, I would, I would love that. With pleasure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Zineb. This was so wonderful. It was so nice to connect with you and hear a little bit about your work. And thank you for all the work that you're doing and for the young people that you're showing up for every day. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, it's always so interesting to be able to talk to kindred spirit that care about the same thing. So I hope that our paths cross again in an outside of podcast conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. If you liked the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.